Hey there, it's uh, Gary Parrish. It's Monday, March 28th, and this is the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander with me, got Sam Bassini with me. Uh, the Final Four is now set. It's Oklahoma versus Villanova in one national semifinal. North Carolina versus Syracuse in the other national semifinal. Oklahoma, Villanova, North Carolina, uh, all makes sense. Each was ranked number one at one point this season. If you're ranked number one, and if you're a number one or a number two seed in the NCAA tournament, there's nothing surprising about you eventually making the final four. But Syracuse, um, as I wrote in a column posted at CBSSports.com, they uh, got zero points in the preseason Associated Press poll. Zero points in the Associated Press poll that was released the day after Selection Sunday. They lost five of their last six games before the NCAA tournament started. They had an RPI of 72 on Selection Sunday, down 11 points to Gonzaga in the Sweet 16, down 16 to Virginia in the Elite Eight, and yet they're still in the Final Four. You were there in the building yesterday, Matt Norlander. How did Mm. this happen? How did we end up with Syracuse in the Final Four? Man, well, it happened because... I mean, if we're going to get real basic about it, Jim Beheim has had the press that he used in both the Gonzaga game and the Virginia game, and I want to touch on both of those. But he has had that uh, as part of his arsenal for years and years and years. Now, it doesn't get used every game or even every five or six games necessarily, but he used it perfectly. It was timed perfectly in both games. I do think this is... One of the most shocking Final Four appearances. I still think George Mason was bigger, and I think VCU having to get through the first four and beat a really good Kansas team and went on this nut nutty three-point barrage en route to a Final Four was more surprising. And in a lot of ways, what Wichita State did, you could say, was a little more surprising. But this Syracuse one is certainly up there, the first 10 seed to ever get to the Final Four. I think it is very remarkable that that RPI number, I think it's going to be something that is attached to this team and not necessarily a good or a bad way. It's just, you know, they were ranked 72nd on selection Sunday. Plenty of people, uh, chided the selection. And I, on this very podcast said that I thought they would get in. I thought their wins were going to be good enough, but I thought they were a perfect candidate for Dayton. Um, instead they ended up playing Dayton, beating Dayton. And Bayheim actually said that the win over Dayton was what allowed the team to believe that it could get some momentum in the tournament. And uh, then, you know, they dodged Michigan State. Bayham actually said on the Dan Patrick show on Monday, apparently. I didn't listen, but uh, I saw the headline passed around. that It's easy for Bayham to say this now, by the way, because they're in the Final Four. But he basically said, we would not have had a shot to beat Michigan State. We kind of, we sidestepped a landmine there. And that's totally reasonable and probably likely. No, it's true. It's true. And I'm glad he said that because sometimes coaches will be dismissive of reality. But that's reality. If, if Middle doesn't beat Michigan State, Syracuse is probably done in the yes. round of 32. Yes, and it's. I was thinking about that on the on the plane ride home this morning from Chicago. Just the way that that quadrant played out in general. I was thinking, man, if, if Michigan State hadn't have done that, um, do they do they get through? Are they the ones playing Virginia? Uh, is it would it be Michigan State in the Final Four? Would Virginia have been just the third time? Would it have been the charm and Tony Bennett's in the Final Four? I, I will say this, uh, you know, being at the game, it was so weird because 
it felt like this just complete inevitability. Bennett was going to get to the Final Four. This Virginia team was built to make a Final Four. It was good enough. I was thinking, you know what? Yeah, this is going to be a, you know, I know they're not the most exciting team, but I'm going to have, I will enjoy getting to cover this team for one more weekend in Houston. I think that'll be pretty cool. And then all of a sudden they deploy the press. They make this comeback. The building didn't even, like, there was no building wave with it, with the with the crowd. Now, there were definitely more Syracuse fans than Virginia fans there, but it was almost like the until they finally took the lead, and then the Syracuse fans, I mean, they were just, and then the, the roar came, and the whole time I'm looking over at Bennett, and, I mean, the, the man just does not sweat. He, uh, You can criticize him, and we should criticize him. I took him to task a little bit in my column uh, last night. I just don't think that this will be something that bothers him. I think a lot of coaches, this will be something they wouldn't get. It would take years over. I just think Tony Bennett is wired differently. He had a, a really leveled quote after the game where people, you know, reporters are obviously asking him the, the enormity of this collapse, and it is a huge one. It's one of the worst ones ever. And he said, and I'm going to really paraphrase him here, but he was like, listen, what these guys have done and what the program was before they got here, Virginia's at the top of the ACC. They've won 89 games over the past three years. The senior class is tied for the most wins for any senior class in program history. Okay, so the loss sucks, but ultimately what they've done means more than losing a game in the Elite Eight. And for Bennett to have that perspective, I think, is important. But at the same time, this will be something that even if it doesn't bother him, and I don't know how much it truly will, I'm telling you, he's just he's a different guy. It will be something that sticks to the program and to him until he gets to a Final Four because it is shocking that a Syracuse team, that Syracuse team, could do it to that Virginia team. It's important to note just how unlikely that Virginia team is to allow 25-4 to four runs and to get outscored 15-2 to two on, on fast-break turnovers because they always get back. You just couldn't see them collapsing like that, and it happened, and I'm, it's still kind of surreal to me. No, uh, so like the, the stat that was thrown out at halftime, Tony Bennett 68-0 when he has a yeah. double-digit lead at the half. Like, what? Okay, so now, like, okay, so uh, I think the win probability when they were up 54-39 with, like, nine and a half left was, like, 99%. Like, this isn't – like, listen, teams blow leads, but not Virginia, not at that tempo, not to a 10 seed. Like, what Like what in the world? And so, uh, listen, Tony can say all the right things, and he did say all the right things, and I thought it was impressive. But I will tell you, if this happened to Johnny Jones, he'd be getting murdered. Like, like Tony has the type of reputation where everybody knows he's smart, everybody knows he's great. But, like, if this happened to another dude, he'd be getting killed. And I, and even though everybody recognizes Tony's great, um, I just remember I'd go on radio in Kansas City uh, before 2008. And every time I talked to any radio host there, they'd say, do you think Bill Self's capable of winning a big game? Do you, like, do you just think he'll ever break through? And I was like, of, of course he'll break through eventually. But my point is, um, and then he did, and that sort of went away, although it popped back up this weekend. Can Bill Self uh, win the big games? Yeah, but, don't even get me started with yeah, that. But yeah, but, like, my point is these these narratives get attached to people. And, um, you know, it, it's one thing when you get – I mean, he's now, past three years, lost to a lower-seeded team. Um, and this time he lost to a double-digit seed in the Elite Eight when he had a 16-point lead in the first half, a 15-point lead with nine minutes to go. Sam, you tell me. Tony Bennett deserves some some credit here. And is this an issue – going forward like is it just something that right now jumps off the wikipedia page 
that he hasn't gotten to a Final Four yet, even though he's had Final Four caliber teams and he's lost to lower-seeded teams in uh, each of the last three years. Is this is this is this uh, is it is it just something that hey yeah that's what you're saying is true, but it doesn't mean anything, or does it mean something? Yeah, I think that there's kind of a lot to unpack here. Obviously, I mean I've said on this podcast before, and I've said it in many forums before, probably that I think that Bennett's Virginia teams are a little bit more susceptible to upsets, right? Because of the slow pace, because they're just not going to create these crazy large leads. Uh, you know that uh that a North Carolina will like a North Carolina team would be up like 25 there. Right. Uh, that'd be like the difference between yeah. a Virginia versus a North Carolina pace wise. There's not going to be able to create the long leads and they're not going to be able to, uh, or at least because of the lower amount of possessions, there's going to be a little bit more variance in the result. It's a slight difference, but a little bit more, um, as far as what to make of this right now, I think that it's fair to point out that, you know, Bennett got pretty severely outcoached in that last 10 minutes. I mean, Beheim obviously instituted that press, but if you noticed right when he did it was right whenever Bennett took Brogdon off the floor to get him his last hit before uh, they came down the stretch for the stretch run, obviously. And, uh, you know, that, that just totally threw Virginia for a loop. And that was right when they turned the ball over a few times and uh, really knocked them out of their rhythm. And, if you noticed, I mean, Virginia wasn't necessarily getting the kind of, you know, superior ball movement that they typically get against that zone, right? They had Malcolm Brogdon in the middle and they were getting him the ball, him the ball reasonably well, but they weren't creating a lot of looks at the rim. Their offense was entirely coming, it seemed like, from the three-point line with London Prentice hitting all these threes. And uh, I want to say that uh, Hall hit a couple. Like, uh, there were, uh, there just was never a point where, I felt like Virginia was playing so extraordinarily well beyond that, you know, six minute stretch in the first half where they went on that massive run. So uh, I think it's fair to point out that Bennett got pretty severely outcoached, but I don't think that it's going to point to anything going forward into the future. I, I think that it's uh, a blip on the radar for what will obviously be an incredibly successful career uh, going forward for Bennett. Uh, Norlander, you agree with that? I do. I do agree with it. Um, this is it's the tenth year of Bennett's career. Um, it's the first time he made the Elite Eight. I disagree. I disagree with people that want to criticize and who have criticized self. Like to me, I would define big games as once you get to the second weekend. I know they get bigger the deeper you go, but. Bennett getting through past the Sweet 16 against a talented offensive Iowa State team, that was a big win in my opinion. If people want to fight back on that and say only Final Fours, National Titles, or Elite Eights, whatever, to me, they they all feel pretty huge once you break through to the second weekend. So this was his first Elite Eight appearance. Obviously, it went dis- it was a disaster. Um, a couple more scenes for me just from, the, from Chicago. Um, the Gonzaga loss was almost as stunning just because Gonzaga – had controlled that game so much and then the press came with three minutes to go and it came on the 10 year anniversary not to the day but obviously um gonzaga losing the sweet 16 to ucla obviously wasn't as big of a lead it wasn't as catastrophic or anything like that this gonzaga team wasn't considered as good but uh 10 years removed you know this does have to be the second toughest loss of mark few's 
uh, career. And I just want to say Mark Few is really just, I mean, him and Tony to take on these losses, they are, they are two of the most talented and two of the nicest guys in the profession, man. I mean, it was, it's not he, what he does. What he's done at Gonzaga is insane. Okay. Just Gonzaga fans to, they know they're going to the tournament every year, you know, and it's just, it's bonkers that, um, they made it again. They made it to the second weekend and they were, they were so close. And I, I wasn't quite aware of how much, um, flack that team was getting throughout the season from the fan base locally. And uh, for them to have done what they've done was, was really impressive. And I know it, you know, it was a Sweet 16 game where a few days removed, but it's still incredible what happened there. But it's a testament to Syracuse, what it's done here. And I got to say that the, the Orange themselves, they definitely were, there was a shock value on the court in the locker room. I mean, I've been in plenty of locker rooms with teams that have won a huge game to go to the second weekend or won a game to go to the Final Four or won a game to win the title, whatever. This felt like they were happy to get the win, but not like a, uh, yeah, but we ain't done yet. I mean, there's definitely some of that, but it was more like, like what we're going to, we're going to the final four right now. Like we just did it. Like Malachi Richardson said he couldn't even believe that they pulled it off and that they were even up six on, on uh, Virginia. Like it happened so fast. There was definitely in that building, man, it, it happened just it was a blur. The the you know it, I don't know how much that took in real time, but I'm telling you, like I looked at the clock, and and Virginia was up comfortably with like ten minutes to go. And next thing I know, it's like two and a half minutes, and it's 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 a total toss up of a game. It was just the weirdest game I think I've ever covered. And even Bayheim afterward, he you know he was, he was he didn't act the way I thought he would. In in that he was just completely about the kids. He wasn't overjoyed. He wasn't. I knew we could have done this. I think he. Um, I think he's just still taking it in. Like it's just the weirdest year ever. Well, he goes to the self, he the, the postseason ban. Right. He sits for nine games this year. They barely get into the tournament. Plenty of people say they shouldn't get in. They get this weird random draw. They never can beat Virginia. Had never done it when Bennett was the coach. They pull it off, and now they're in the Final Four. It's just so weird. Well, he even said earlier today on a conference call, Jim Beheim did that. Like, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically, like, I wish I could tell you I knew we could do this. Like, this isn't a me. Like, I thought we belonged in the tournament. Um, I'll argue with you about that. But I didn't think we could go to the Final Four. You know, I'm surprised we're here. Like, he, those are, I'm paraphrasing, but those are um, uh, essentially his words. And yeah. I will tell you, um, it happened quickly last night in real time. And feel, in, yeah, because when you're time. at the game, you guys know, when you're at the game, it can, the way you watch it and take it in is so different when you see it on TV. Well, we, so I'm sitting in studio. Um, at the CBS Broadcast Center, and because, you know, it's a television network, there are a whole bunch of Syracuse grads who work with us, right? Um, One of whom is Adam Zucker, who's uh, the studio host. And so he had a show starting live at, I don't know, maybe maybe 8 o'clock, you know, something like that. And I, I, like, we're all sitting there watching the Syracuse game, and he's, like, fired up. He's a Syracuse grad. He loves his school. And he... Uh, as he's getting ready to go on set, he looks over <clears throat> at Brent Stover, who's another studio host, and he says, uh, "Man, you know what's you know? There's nothing really worse. Like I've got to go out and host this show live, and then we got to go to a losing press conference for my alma mater. Like I've got to introduce, and now we go uh, live to Chicago to uh, see Jim Beheim, the losing coach. And he was like, ah, I just hate that. Like, and that's the way he walked out onto the set, and then the game, and then they were leaving. 
Like it was so Man. out of even the Syracuse fans. That's crazy. The, the Syracuse fans who like um, were sitting next to me, like they were the game was over. There was no scenario under which any of them thought like it was like, all right, I'm gonna go grab something to eat. Like the game's over. We're not watching anymore. Uh, Adam yeah. walked out to set thinking, uh, I guess I'll introduce Jim Beheim, losing coach in the Elite Eight. You know, this will be a fun little press conference. And then and then it it was just a wild. It wasn't as historic as Northern Iowa's collapse uh, because like that one was, I would agree that one was historic is the right word there. Yeah. That one was literally something we'd never seen before, but this was similarly surprising because of the, the characters that were involved. Like it's one thing when a certain team blows a lead, you go, Oh, there they go again. Can't take care of the ball. Like I remember there was a regular season game at some point and it was LSU and they, I think they ended up winning, but they like really like, just kicked it around for the final four. That would minutes. be the Florida game. Okay, I right? Believe. And everybody was just ki- like laughing. Like, Is laughing. that at the O-Dome? I think it was at the You know what it's like to try to go down to the O-Dome, Norlander. Yeah. And so I I just remember everybody like clowning Johnny Jones. And like that was, and that was still crazy that they almost blew that. But people were rationalizing because, rationalizing because it was a coach they don't perceive to be good. This is a coach everybody thinks is great. Like Jim Beheim has said, and I don't think just for public consumption, but like privately, like so in other words, it's not just something he says publicly to like say something nice about somebody. Like privately, he's told to- people he thinks Tony Bennett's the best coach in college basketball, and I think you can get a lot of people who would agree with that. And and then they play literally the slowest tempo in college basketball. Like there is nothing when that score is fifty four thirty nine. There is nothing in the world that can make you think that Syracuse is about to come back and win this game. I mean, it really is. I think I think the magnitude of the comeback and the upset and all of that is uh, blurried a little bit because it's Syracuse. Like, because mm-hmm. and Syracuse sounds still big. Like, I I've seen some people on Twitter going, "Hey, it's still Syracuse. Like, what's the big deal? Syracuse is in the Final Four. But like, if you can rip away that this is Sarah, the Orange." And understand exactly the makeup of this team, what this team has been all year, who this team was playing in the Elite Eight, what the score was with nine and a half minutes to go. Like, it's on the short list of most surprising final nine minutes of any NCAA tournament game in history. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was totally shocked that they somehow found a way to win that game. I would say that, yeah, the Northern Iowa one was more historic. But I was probably equally as shocked right. during that Virginia run than, or as I was during the Northern Iowa collapse. Um, like Malachi Richardson, like that guy couldn't miss. He had that sweet little like fake pass move fake. against Mike Toby. That was beautiful. Like I could not believe what I was watching as that thing unfolded. Just because you never expect that, like you guys said, you never expect it from a Virginia team. They're so well schooled. They have so many guards that can handle the ball. They don't turn the ball over. Like, at what point do you just become so unraveled? I was just shocked with how unraveled that old senior-oriented, non-turnover, pre- non-turnover prone team became. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the other game, I, I, you know, Notre Dame hung around for a little while. Um, North Carolina wins. Yeah, I didn't see one second of yeah, that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was such a chaos. Like, yeah, there was nothing. A... You didn't miss anything. That, that one, I think, actually played out about the way most people thought it would play out, right? 
Um, you know, it's competitive for a little while. North, you know, the better team pulls away, double-digit win. Roy's back in the Final Four. So we've got uh, Syracuse and North Carolina playing on Saturday. And obviously, um, a storyline is going to be it's the team that's on probation uh, against the team that is probably going to be on probation at some point. I mean, I don't want to speculate on what the punishment will be, if only because North Carolina fans get incredibly offended by that. Um, don't re- they don't really get that offended by like decades of fake classes, but like if you hint that maybe punishment's coming, they they flip out on you. So, um, but it is just sort of uh, perfect, I think. I don't like people have called it awkward. I call it perfect. Like you know, as long as we're tying uh, you know uh, big time basketball teams to institutions of higher learning and paying coaches millions and millions of dollars and telling them their goal is to win a basketball tournament that's worth billions of dollars to television networks, uh, like, of course we get academic fraud. Of course we get rules violations. And uh, though people um, have pointed out, oh, this was bound to happen someday where you're going to get this embarrassing moment, Syracuse versus North Carolina, uh, you know, uh, two schools that have, uh, you know, uh, one's gone in front of the Committee on Infractions in the past couple years, another one's headed that direction. Uh, The truth is, you go back to the 2011 a national uh, championship situation, and we had the same thing. Like, I, I think sometimes people forget that, but I actually went and found my column, the one filed on that Monday night after UConn uh, under Jim Calhoun won the national championship, and this is the way uh, the first paragraph sounded. An athletic director from a school whose football coach will be suspended five games next season for violating NCAA rules, watched a team on probation win the national championship, then handed the trophy to a basketball coach who will be suspended three games next season for illegal recruiting. Uh, that was Gene Smith. Jim Tressel mm. was his coach at the time, Ohio State. And then, of course, Connecticut, Jim Calhoun. So, like, we've had these moments before, and it, it just sort of, like, I don't even get, a, like, bothered by it anymore. It just sort of is what it is. This, this is college athletics. Like, what we're going to watch next weekend and all of the stories that will be attached to it, co- leading up to it, like, this is, um, I don't want to say it's unavoidable, but it is, um, it is more representative of big-time college athletics, North Carolina and Syracuse and their scandals flourishing anyway. Um, that's way more representative of big-time college basketball than Butler making the Final Four. Way more representative. Yeah, can, yeah, go ahead. Can we just point out that, like, because Syracuse and North Carolina are in this NCAA tournament, the ACC not only gets – you know, the respect of having two final four teams being the only conference that has two final four teams, but the ACC is going to make so much money from this situation. They're going to make $39.9 million from this NCAA tournament just due to the performance of teams in the league. I mean, they had six sweet 16 teams. You had the four elite eight teams and the two final four teams now, plus the other countless games that they played. $39.9 $39.9 million is what the league's going to make. So uh, I think that the ACC is certainly benefiting from uh, the sanctions not coming down on North Carolina yet or whatever may happen with North Carolina not happening yet. Uh, and as long as that continues to be the case, as long as there are still very significant financial uh, benefits to be reaped, uh, why wouldn't you just laugh at this? Why wouldn't you just say, yeah, this is what college athletics is? Yeah, don't. Uh, that would be my advice, honestly, to, to big-time uh, universities that want to be big-time basketball programs. Uh, don't be put off by the, the what happened at Syracuse and North Carolina. Learn from it. Like, mm-hmm. the, there's probably yeah. some lessons there. They're making bazillions yeah. of dollars, and they're 
uh, they're winning at an extremely high level. Why? Um, because they, you know, what happened at, at Syracuse under a different head coach would have got the head coach fired. What happened at North Carolina uh, under a, at, at a different place would have got everybody fired. And yet it didn't, right? And, and why? Because here we are. That's why. And you know, a couple quick things. I know most of our listeners are, are very well versed and, and knowledgeable on the sport in general. So I think they, they get the fact that no matter what happens here with Carolina, there is nothing to suggest that this um, championship, if they were to win it, would be necessarily vacated because the period of review, which Carolina is under, falls uh, within the timeline of the two previous national championships. So any questions of title vacation would come with those and not this one. Um, this will obviously be a major storyline, and it should. Um, Syracuse, we we recorded – I remember – Recording that podcast on that day when Syracuse announced its postseason ban, self-implemented, and um, we understood the move, but we criticized the move. We kind of criticized it on both ends with Syracuse and the NCAA, but guess what? And I remember us talking about, like, Beheim, the end of his career, what it was coming to be, when he should step down, and it's just ridiculous that we had that conversation less than 14 months ago. And now this program is back in another Final Four. Bayheim's actually had a hell of a run in terms of on-the-court achievements over the past four or five years of his career after he was obviously so good for so long, but had a little bit of, okay, well, yeah, you made you won the 03 title, you made the 96 title game. People expected more Elite Eights out of him, more Final Fours out of him. Well, he's made up with that, with what he's done here. What I will be interested to see, guys, is... How much this is a storyline, and it will be one of the predominant ones as it should. And then both Roy and Jim in the past, and I would guess again here upcoming, they have never been afraid to talk about this stuff and because they almost can't help themselves. Similar to how Patino is, I would say Patino's, you know, quote unquote, the worst about it, or maybe the well, best. Patino's but another they never, level they because they're like, afraid not to talk well, about like it. Roy, except for that one time when well, Parrish well, went to uh, the ACC media today, well, and even then. Beheim couldn't help himself. What's funny about Patino is Roy and Jim will talk about it if you ask them about it. Like, if you bring, they're not going to just start chit chatting you up about it, but like, if you ask them about it, they'll talk about it. Um, even like when I was with Roy the day before the season started at the Naval Academy, like, um, you know, we, like, he, he, he wasn't going to bring it up, but as soon as I brought it up, he was ready to talk about it, right? Um, yeah. Patino, what's hilarious about Rick is. <laughs> He'll like just pop on anywhere and talk about it. Like, there's no reason for him to be on Mike and Mike, <laughs> just randomly talking about the Louisville scandal in in March. And yet there he was. You know, he, like Rick, I think um, Jim and Roy end up talking about it when they're put into situations where they have to talk, and then people inevitably ask about it. Rick will just like pop, show up anywhere. Like he'll pop into a radio station and pop onto a television network. He just like he. Um, that's what's funny to me. Like, I thought at this point, Rick should should have just shut it down. You know, there's nothing else to say. And yet there he was just a few weeks back on Mike and Mike talking about it uh, at, at, at length. But, no, it'll be interesting because, uh, you know, they've there's nothing new to say. But you know how these Final Fours get. You get a whole bunch of media people there and media outlets there who aren't just covering basketball games. Like, really, from November to March – um, it's just people who cover basketball going to basketball games and basketball press conferences and basketball conference mm -hmm. calls. Now you're going to end up with, with legitimate news outlets, 
you know, like I wouldn't be surprised if NPR shows up, like, you know, uh, it, like you're going to get like straight like general columnists from New York Times, this yes. kind of stuff. You, you, yeah. It's a much wider pool without right. a doubt. Yes. And, and for <laughs> those people and those people's audiences, uh, this is a story, you know, like the you know, it's the same way like if John Calipari, uh, you know, John Calipari might go two months without without being uh, grilled on uh, vacated Final Fours and the, the the way he's just running kids through school one after the other, one year at a time. Um, but then suddenly, you know, the yeah, like you said, the Washington Post general columnist shows up and, and that's what that person wants to write about for that particular audience who doesn't care anything about, um, you know, the dribble dive offense. And so, like, that's coming this week. Like, try, well, like earlier, they were both on a press conference and they both, it got, they both got asked about it. And it'll whenever the media availability starts down in Houston, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it'll be a story um, up until those games tip off. And depending on how uh, TBS handles the broadcast, it, it'll be at least a note within the broadcast as well. I would assume we talked about it last night on TV. Like this is a di- and and it, and and it should be a story. It, it should it, it's not connected to Malachi Richardson and Marcus Page, but these are two programs run by two men, and and who are Hall of Famers and incredibly successful guys. And under their watch, um, some stuff that like that shouldn't be happening on college campuses, according to the NCAA rulebook, um, you know, happened. And even if they can distance themselves from it, it, it was still um, it was still on their watch. And, and uh, it'll be something that's discussed uh, all week long, as, as I think it should. But again, uh, this is... I guess that I did a radio interview last night and they asked me about it. And I said, you know, people act like this is, um, oh my God, is this what college athletics is about? Well, yes, this is exactly what college athletics is about. Like it's much, it's much more sensible to have programs, big, powerful programs operating outside of the rule book flourishing. That makes way more sense to me than Butler making the final four out of the horizon league or, or VCU making it. Um, out of whatever league they were in that year, Colonial is that what it was? Um, yeah, like mm-hmm. that to me. That's the that's the get out of here moment. This this is what big time college athletics is, and I suspect it's it'll be what big time college athletics is until uh, until we stop doing it. I would uh, I would agree with that, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about this on Friday's podcast because we'll have had media right. availability at that point. And we'll see if any of those comments become a story. But let's talk about the big thing, and that's me nailing Villanova and Oklahoma on the other side of the bracket, GP. Congratulations to you. I had uh, Kansas and Oklahoma, of course. I did have Notre Dame beating Carolina, so I'm fully aware of what I got way wrong. Um, But, uh, (laughs) I mean, that's going to be fun, right? You get the Big East champs against uh, another team that was ranked number one in the country. Both those teams, Villanova and Oklahoma, were ranked number one in the country at one point. And then, while I do think the – the general news storyline will be Syracuse, North Carolina, academic scandal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the pure basketball storyline here, I, at least in my opinion, it's Buddy. Like, Buddy has become a, a little bit of a basketball phenomenon. Like, um, you know, the way Jimmer was a, a thing, but never a thing at this level of the sport, meaning the Final Four, like, Buddy Hield is, is, is the deal now. He is must-see television to the extent that you think you must-see college basketball games. And um, he is, assuming when he wins the Wooden Award, going to be the fourth Wooden Award winner in the past five years to appear in the Final Four. Can you name them? 
Can either one of you name them? Do you know? See, it goes back to 2012. Uh, yeah, I mean, Frank's. So you'd have Kemba, you'd have you have Kemba, no, you'd no, have no, AD. No, 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 Kemba no. didn't win it. No, um, and, no, but it starts. You have AD. In, it starts in 2012 as Anthony Davis, right? Okay. Two, yeah. 2013. Trey Burke. It's Trey, Trey Burke. Burke. Correct. Right. Uh, 14 Shabazz. 14 is Doug McDermott. That's where you get caught. Doug McDermott. What am I yeah. doing to myself right now? 15's Frank, and then Frank. 16 is yeah. Buddy. So this will be the fourth in five years if Buddy wins the Wooden Award. That the My Wooden Award winner Shabazz. will be uh, will be oh. in the uh, in the final in the final four. So that's kind of a neat. Like once we start the basketball games, like in terms of like star quality in that in that dome, like Buddy's Buddy's the guy, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was there in Anaheim this weekend and, you know, you could tell basically from the time the second shot went through the rim and, and, you know, didn't touch the rim at all, that Buddy was locked in. Like, you could just see that he was going to have a massive game. And he didn't disappoint, I would say. He had 37 on 13 and 20 shooting. And it was awesome. I mean, he's a guy that performs at the biggest moments. He had 17 and 10 in their Sweet 16 game. But that was mostly because... Uh, Texas A&M just face guarded them the whole game. They had Alex Caruso stay on them the entire way, and uh, Buddy was content with letting his teammates beat the beat the Aggies. And you know Jordan Water did that. Isaiah Cousins had a great game. Ryan Spangler had a great game. And you know that's the problem with this Oklahoma team. There are just so many, so many ways they can beat you just because you know if you try and stay on Buddy and face guard them. You know, these guys are all athletic and quick and can get to the rim and can get penetration against you. If you don't face guard Buddy, well, he's just going to kill you. Uh, so you have to find a way to just maybe have Buddy have an off game. And with the way he's locked in right now, I don't know that he's going to have an off game, to be honest. Yeah, it doesn't look like it. And, um, you know, on the other side, that Villanova team, like, look, tip of a hat to them, right? Because, um, you know, people had sort of questioned them all season long based off of their previous tournament history. In other words, um, though they looked the part all year, except for maybe the Oklahoma game early, and um, they won the Big East regular season title, I think by multiple games, and they put together a resume that was possibly worthy of a one seed. And the Kimpom numbers all loved them all year long. People still said, yeah, but, you know, they lack this and they lack that. When they get in the tournament, they'll be exposed. And um, they went out and beat the number one overall seed, like on a, on a neutral court. And, and it wasn't fluky. You know, they, they, they had a lead early. They took a punch. They punched back. Um, you know, it wasn't anything other than, than you know, they, they just outplayed Kansas on that particular night. And so um, – Good for them because that's a that's a worthy Final Four team. Sometimes you get fluky Final Four teams, but there's nothing fluky about uh, Villanova being here. And um, and now they're a favorite over Oklahoma, which was a little surprising to me, mm-hmm. if only because you know I watched the first game, but the first game was a million years ago. Like it really, both teams are vastly different. Villanova plays vastly differently uh, than it did back then. Um, so like, uh, I, I don't think it really has any bearing on this one, but. You know, Villanova is the favorite, and Jay Wright is is projected at this moment to play for a national championship uh, next Monday night, which is uh, good for Jay Wright, right? Yeah, the, hey, listen, that um, that was a an intense game against Kansas, and let's note that Villanova basically romped on offense through the first three rounds of the tournament, and then it flipped it, and this is why Villanova is so good and can win the title. It stopped a Kansas team, changed its game plan, one with defense, 
And I'm not sure a lot of people were expecting Villanova to win the way that it did. Um, Ryan Archidiacono is right behind Buddy Heald in terms of the players that have played the best through four rounds of this tournament. He's shooting about 60% from three. And it would be great to see those guys uh, trade buckets. I think that's going to be fantastic. I got to be honest. I understand why Carolina Cues is the second game because those two programs have more um, traditional power behind them and will bring in a bigger audience. But the better game should be by far Villanova, sure. Oklahoma. I thought it would be a pick em. Um I have Oklahoma winning the title, um, but of course Villanova can win. And good for them in getting to this point, getting through, kind of eradicating all the failures from the past two years. They're so fun to watch, man. I mean, they they can do it at all three levels on both ends of the floor. And it was it was a fun game to to, to see them play. I do want to have one quick thing on self. Um, just I, I just don't get this criticism here because the guy has not made six final fours. It for some reason is starting to again become this thing. He would be my gosh, if he did not have that 08 title, it would be the weirdest thing out there. There are just too many people that are starting to take too much joy in how Bill Self isn't getting to final fours as one seeds. But guess what? The fact that he is going every season in the past seven years has been a number one or number two seed, and he's got that weird stat, which is a stat you kind of want. Him and Mike Krzyzewski are tied for the most losses to lower seeds as a number one or number two or something like that. Like that's a good stat to have, you know. Um, well, you can't I, I, you can't have that stat unless you're not unless you're getting ones and two seeds all the time. Exactly. So, it, Bill Self is still a top five coach in the sport. Kansas is probably going to win the Big Twelve again next year, and it just all, all it does to me is it reiterates like how hard it is to win in this tournament, okay? It's so hard to get to the Final Four, and, and frankly, it involves luck. It does not just purely involve how great of a coach you are and how great your team is. You, every coach will tell you that you have to catch breaks throughout the season in order to get to a Final Four. Self has been unlucky in some regard. He's going to make more of them, and... and He's going to win another national title. I, I would be shocked if it didn't happen. It's no guarantee, but he's just too good. I would think the you know he'll get another one that will go his way at some point. Let me ask you this, Sam, um, because he is now, and I think Bill brought this up the other night, two and six in regional finals. Mm-hmm. He only has two Final Fours, uh, one national championship, and I feel a little stupid saying only has two Final Fours as if like. You know, like yeah. uh, like great guys have coached for thirty years and never gotten anywhere close to a Final Four. So like, he, sure, he has two Final Fours. Um, but here would be the counter argument, and, and keep in mind, I don't subscribe to this because I love Bill Self forever and always. But uh, you'll hear it, and then you already hear it. Okay, fine, they win the Big Twelve every year. That's the that's the Bill Self stat everybody holds on to, right? Twelve Big Twelve titles in a row. It's amazing. Well, and, and so the counter-argument becomes, okay, how amazing is it? Because it's only resulted in two Final Fours, two out of 12. That means 10 times when they won the Big 12, they didn't go to a Final Four. And even though the league is consistently rated well, um, if Kansas never gets to a Final Four, and other Big 12 teams rarely get to a Final Four, like, is it possible the numbers are just, uh, it's, I don't want to say manipulated, because that, that's, that implies that somebody's doing something to, to, to work the numbers. But, like, is it possible the numbers are misleading? That the reason Kansas wins the Big 12 every year is because the Big 12 is winnable for a program of that stature every year? 
and um, and then they get into the tournament where they have to play against everybody else's uh, teams. And not only does Kansas not consistently get to the Final Four, but the Big 12 doesn't consistently get to the Final Four either. You listen to any no. of that? I don't listen to any of it either, but I have people explain no. it to me through email over and over again. And you'll see people on TV saying the same thing. We're, we're talking about a 12-year sample. No, we have like a 12-year sample now. I, I, I tend to think that, you know, the numbers even themselves out after such a large sample. And I think that most statisticians would tell you that as well. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's silly to complain about what Bill Self has done. And it's silly to complain about the Big 12 Conference as a whole, uh, given how far they tend to go right before they go to the... Uh, to the, uh, whatchamacallit, the Final Four. I mean, Bill Self, like you said, is two and six in the Elite Eight, and I think that that is a tr tremendous mark to get to go to eight Elite Eights in go. what, I guess, what, 20 years? He's gone to eight Elite Eights? That's wild. You take that is, every time. I agree. Every time you take that. Yeah. He is a 53-year-old coach that is going to have 600 wins before the end of the non-conference season next year. Yep. That is in insane that is beyond the pale of like rational thought that, that someone could be there like he he is i don't know that i'm gonna say probably but he's gonna have a really good shot to surpass mike krzyzewski is the all-time winningest coach in college basketball and <laughs> can you complain like I, I don't understand these people that can complain about such a ridiculous consistency uh, from a program. You know, I complain about the way he sometimes handles young players, but I don't think you can complain about the success on the floor. That is indisputable and absolutely remarkable, in my opinion. He is unimpeachable whenever it comes to that. You can complain about the other stuff if you want, but that's not that's not something that you should be complaining about. I agree with you. Uh, I was just I was bringing it up because other people are going to bring it up, and other people. No, 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 no. I know that you're yeah. not the one complaining. Yeah. Trust me, I, yeah. I I am fully aware of that. It's more the complaint of others, and you are fully right because it gets in my mentions too, and I get frustrated. Right. Um, the other thing in, in terms of talking coaches <clears throat> who are going to be in this Final Four, they are of course Jay Wright, Lon Kruger, Roy Williams, Jim Beheim. Uh, Beheim, yep. Roy, already in the Hall of Fame. I think we all agree, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I think we all agree Lon Kruger's going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. I think every I coach think in this so. Final Four is going to be in the Hall of Fame. I thought okay. about that. I was, uh, well, I yeah. Wrote, yeah, I mentioned this in a column. Like, I, and, and Jay Wright um, is going to pass 500 wins next year. He's averaging 32 wins a season uh, since the Big East split. So, like, in this current uh, – uh, uh, version of the Big East, he's like he's obviously dominating it, right? And he's only, I think, fifty four. So like, mm -hmm. if he coaches just another ten years, and by the way, coaching to sixty four is nothing anymore. If you're successful, like, go look at all the greats; they're all like past that at this point. Um, Lon Kruger, I think, is like sixty three or sixty four. Right, like you, yeah, and like Lon ain't walking away after this year. So like, Jay's gonna get the seven hundred, seven fifty, eight hundred wins probably. And now he's got multiple Final Fours. He could, in theory, have a national championship. I think it is reasonable to suggest that we could look back on this Final Four someday and go, wow, that was a Final Four with the National Player of the Year, Buddy Hill, and four Hall of Fame coaches. And I went back and looked at it. You know, we don't get the four Hall of Fame coaches too often. Like, um, you know, uh, last year could be one if Bo gets there. But do you think Bo Ryan's ever going to get there? Yes. 
I don't. I mean, know. he was yeah, almost in last year. He was a finalist last year. He was a you would think he'll probably get in. in. Yeah, he may or may not, right? But we don't we don't know. It, 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 unless he comes back and coaches, he's sort of sitting in the clubhouse now, waiting to to see. Um, mm-hmm. You know, year before that, I mean, it, it, we'd be relying on Kevin Ollie. I think it's way too early to talk about that. Um, year before that, we'd be relying on John Beeline and Greg Marshall to get there. Year before that, you'd have Cal- 2012. You have Calipari. That's easy. Self. That's easy. Patino. Already it's a good one. Yeah, but it's Thad Mata. Yeah. Is Thad gonna get there? I don't know. It's, well, we'll see. And well, then what about the year before that? That's that's also interesting. Well, that you got was, the... well, it, I mean, we're ways off. But it's it's Calhoun, it's Brad Stevens, which I think is reasonable. Yes. It's Calipari, obviously already yep. in. It's Shaka Smart. It's that's so that's the one. That's yeah, just not just, that that's gonna happen. It's just that's that's an intriguing one that we one, wouldn't we never thought about at the time. Here's two, but... 2010. I think you could maybe get there. It's Shashevsky. It's Stevens. It's Izzo and Huggins. I think I think Huggins gets in someday. I think Stevens gets in someday. 2010 could be a um, a Final Four with four Hall of Fame coaches. Year before that, um, this one would check if Jay Wright got in the same way the current one would check if Jay Wright got in because it's uh, Roy, Izzo, Jay Wright, and Jim Calhoun. Who, and so mm-hmm. Calhoun is already in. Roy's already in. Izzo's about to go in. 2008, Self Calipari, Roy, Ben Howland. Howland, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see, right? It's going to be hard to do from Mississippi State, I would think, but like, whatever, we'll see. Year before that, you got Howland again, so it's the same issue. Year before that, you got Laranega, and you've got Billy. Um, you've got Billy. John Brady. Ooh, that's gonna right? be that's gonna be tough. You got, you got, <laughs> that's not gonna happen. 2006, you're running into it with John Brady. Um, okay, so 2005, yeah. I mean, 2005 had, is Bruce Weber, too, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, not going to make that happen. 2004, you had Paul Hewitt. Paul Hewitt. That ain't going to work <laughs> out. 2003, uh, Rick Barnes. Tom Crean. The great Tom, Tom Crean. Crean. No reason. I'm not I'm not ruling that out. Uh, 2002, Gary Williams was Knight. Mike Davis. Oh, God, that's going to be tough. Uh, 2001, you go Krzyzewski, Loot. Gary year, Williams, Izzo, that oh. might do it, right? Can that was Gary... a good year, yeah. Can... Huh? Uh, who do you who do you guys think is the best coach in this year's Final Four? Ooh. Oh, let me go back to the sure one that we already have first. 1991, yeah. Shashevsky, uh, Roy, already in, already in. Uh, Dean Smith, already in. Tark. Tark, already in. That's yeah. the one. 91's the one. Best in this one? Um, I think it's Bayheim. Hard to argue with Bayheim. Like I, I really think the world of Lon Kruger. It's, it's an I, awesome conversation and yeah. an amazing debate, but I do think it's Bayheim. I got no issue with that. And and I, the one of the things that I've liked, and I mean this sincerely, uh, about watching this season unfold, is that I've always thought Bayheim is amazing, if only because you can't do what he's done. I like, I, and I know people say you can do it if you're cheating, and I get all that, right? But like, I don't think Syracuse has been awesome for thirty years because, because of cheating. Uh, might have helped, <laughs> but but you, you but I I think he's great, and I don't think he's thought of as great. You, you know, like I I know he's in the Hall of Fame, and I know he's got a national championship, and I know he's been consistently great, and so like almost by definition, you have to consider him great. But when you start asking people, so who are the best five coaches in the country? Like Beheim never gets put on those lists. Shashevsky will. It's a little bit like Roy. Roy people don't think of Roy that way either. And one of the things that I, I found interesting with Beheim in this season is that 
Um, I think the suspension almost maybe helped his legacy. It hurt his Wikipedia page, but maybe helped his legacy in this sense because they so clearly were terrible without him. Like they were just not, they were lost without him. And then as soon as he came back, they got, they got pretty good. And then they stumbled at the end of the season, but now he's got a double-digit seed. One thing to take Carmelo to the Final Four or let Carmelo take you to the Final Four. Another thing to take a double-digit seed that finished 9-9 nine and nine here. And I, I think on some level, it's, um, it's enhanced his reputation as a basketball coach. I think on some level, him abandoning the zone, going full-court press to upset Gonzaga and then uh, Virginia – like enhances his reputation as a as a basketball coach. Is that fair? Or am I overthinking it, Sam? No, I think that that's entirely fair. Uh, I think Beheim is like on the floor one of the best coaches in the country. Uh, there there are things about Jim Beheim that I am not the biggest fan of, but I, I think that on the floor he is uh, one of the best tacticians you'll find in the country. I, I mean, like like I said earlier, I mean he. It's not easy to make Tony Bennett look bad on a basketball floor. Woo! Bayheim he made Tony him. Bennett look bad, man. Woo! Like, he, he did. Like, do you know how hard that is? Like, yes. you do. But, like, it is insanely difficult to do that. And Bayheim just queued up every single little thing that was going to work in that game. And, you know, yeah, Malachi Richardson getting hot and not being able to hit the rim is not a coaching decision. But... Uh, yeah, I'm a really big fan of what Beheim brings when he's coaching on the floor. So uh, I definitely agree that he's in that top five, uh, you know, conversation at the very least. GP, I'll wrap it up on this end with this. Um, I, I do want to mention that, you know, what Kruger has done um, at so many programs and he is now, you know, he's gone 22 years between Final Four, has taken five programs to the tournament that's tied for the most ever. That's really hard to do, and it's probably something Beheim couldn't do. So he's got his own forte in that regard. Um, Jay Wright is still kind of establishing what he is. I think he's just he, – Jay Wright's considered just one of the – a rock steady coach, clearly, you know, top 10, top 15 in the business. But then Roy Williams, I'm – you know, he is a really – if you told me – here's the thing. I think Beheim's the best coach in the, in the Final Four. But if you told me I could pick any uh, coach and you're just giving me – this squad from scratch, I take Roy because of all the talent that he's had. And by the way, this is his eighth Final Four. Beheim has five. Eight is tied for the second most ever. Um, he is certainly owed a lot of credit for what he's done. And you, you touched on that. We've touched on it plenty of times before. Like he's, a, he's just a really, really, really good coach. Um, so when I say I think Beheim's the best coach, I do think he is in this field. But that's no slight against Roy Williams, who is honestly one of the all-time coaches, without a doubt. To get to eight Final Fours, especially yeah. what we just talked about with Self, I mean, it's fairly ridiculous. And, of course, you know, maybe we'll hit this Wednesday or Friday, but there's a distinct possibility this will be his final one. So we'll see. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that later. North Carolina fans are always going, already going nuts because I at least mentioned it in a column. But um, it is something in people in basketball circles talk about. And, uh, honestly – you know, when I was with Roy back in the preseason, like he did not mention retirement. I don't, I don't, I want to be very, very clear, but he made it so clear to me. And I would encourage anybody to go back and read that column. I think it sort of got lost on that Friday of the uh, start of the season, you know, because it was also a Friday of a football season. But um, I linked it inside the column that's uh, on the homepage at cbssports.com. It's, um, you know, it was Roy like telling me in, in, in great detail. Um, I really appreciated him open up like this. He like he hurts like in a way that he's never hurt before. I mean, this is a guy who's battled cancer and vertigo and had 
um, uh, knee, knee surgeries. Like he had multiple knee surgeries last off season. And he, one of the things he told me was that, you know, in all his years of coaching, assistant head coach, Kansas, Carolina, anywhere, he had never sat down during a practice, never once. He's always standing up, walking around the court, always, never sit down. Kids get water, he stands up. And he says now he has to sit down. And, and not because he won't, don't, you know, uh, wants to sit down. He, he just can't stand up that long anymore. Like his body has started to fail him in a way that, that happens when you get older. And, and he's, um, I guess I would say this, he's only 64 years old. So he's not even like the oldest guy in this final four, not even close. Um, but he's a much, he, he's, he's been through more, if that makes sense. Like, uh, the, the, um, he, it, it, physically, he is older than 64. And the, the mental stress that the NCAA case has brought on him, I know has worn him down as well. And um, I'll say what I wrote. Um, ultimately, this will be up to him. And, and selfishly, I hope he coaches for another 10 years. I like Roy Williams. Um, like, really like Roy Williams. Uh, you know, even when I wrote some some things that were critical of of his program you know, about this academic scandal that's rooted um, somewhere within the athletic department. Um, I, I know that he didn't like everything I wrote. Um, he's made that clear. But he's also been super cool every time I've been around him. Like, he's happy to talk. And he seems to be one of those guys that understands um, you know, people like, like me have a job to do, even if he doesn't agree with every opinion I might have. And yet, um, he never let that get in the way of a of a civil conversation. And I just remember being there with him on the you know right before the start of the season, and and noticing, um, and I I I mean this not in a negative way at all, just in an, in an honest way. I think Roy would tell you the same thing. Like he didn't look well, you know. He looked like he was hurting. He looked like a man who was hurting a little bit. And and so I hope he coaches for another ten years. But could I envision a scenario where and it wouldn't just be like, hey, he wants to walk away, go out on top. Like, I don't think Peyton Manning wanted to go out on top. I think Peyton Manning wanted to play football. But he recognized that, you know, it, it's, it's not easy to do anymore. And I, I think, I think uh, unless Roy is miraculously feeling way better today than he was back in November, and there's nothing to suggest that that's true, I could see a scenario where his body starts to make it where it's just not re- – it's, it's mostly unreasonable – to try to keep doing this to yourself, putting yourself through this, and hey, maybe this is a good time to, to step away. I'm not predicting it. I think he'll coach North Carolina next year. But it, uh, just like the academic stuff we said that's going to get talked about, when we get to Houston, trust me, this stuff, it, it'll be, he'll, be, he'll be asked about it over and over yeah. again. I, I'll be interested to see how he, he reacts to it, and I'm confident he'll just bat it right out of the uh, air. But yeah. – to be clear, I had no idea Jim Bay or uh, not Jim Beheim. Roy Williams was 64 years old. Yeah, I thought he was like considerably older. I thought he was like 68, 69. No, uh, but like he's a old he's a older 64. You know, like like he's been through a lot, man. Like he's been through a lot, and uh, you know, I, I just I just I just I could see it. I don't I won't predict it. But I, I could see it. And I'm not even certain that it would be like his choice. Like, you know what? Like I, In other words, he'll be asked about it this week, and I'm confident he'll just bat it out of the air. <laughs> because I don't think he's sitting around going, if I can win two more games, I'm going to walk around on top and, and ride into the sunset. I don't believe that he's thinking in those terms. But I could see where maybe um, 
he, he reaches a point physically where he just says, why would I come back and do this again? Like, why do you want to grind in the summer? You know, like, you know, his, his body has changed on him. And, um, and, and, and if he, you know, did Jim Calhoun really wanted to step away when he had to step away? I don't know. He fell off a bike, man. Yeah, but like his body started to fail. Like if Jim was well, going, because yeah, he fell off a bike. Like that's actually what happened. <laughs> but like I, that's my point is that like you know sometimes it ain't up to you, you know. And I and I, I I could see a scenario. I'm not predicting it. I could see it though. A scenario where um, you know this decision is made by uh, by his body, as opposed to by his heart or anything else. But anyway, yeah, like you said, we'll um, we'll deal with that. Once we get there, I, before we get out of here, I do want to ask you this. Um, we all talk about storybook Final Fours and storybook endings and all that stuff. What's the best possible story we could have next Monday night? Uh, I think okay. you might have just said it, to be honest. Roy Williams I mean, winning and walking away. That would be unbelievable. Or, or yeah. just Roy winning. I think, Roy, you know, Roy winning, though, would be interesting because for everybody who would think it's just awesome to see this man who's gone through it physically and. And, uh, you know, I honestly, the Marcus Page senior night speech, I thought that was really good. Like it, um, you know, that was a kid. He didn't have to say those things. And I, 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 for people who haven't seen it, I would encourage you to. Um, he seemed genuinely emotional about Roy Williams and Roy uh, vice versa. And like to see that man get this moment, um, I think there would be a, a certain segment of college basketball fans that could, that could really appreciate that. But then for everyone who really appreciated it, there'd be somebody saying, Ah, uh, the cheaters win again. You know, like the academic fraud stuff would come right back up. So I don't know if that one would be universally celebrated. I think that would be a pretty divisive story. A cool I think the, yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, is that fair? Like a cool story, but a divisive story. I mean, it would be a divisive my, my story. P- my pick is Buddy Heald hits a game-winning shot over North Carolina to win 87-85. I, I think love that's that. the best possible ending you could ask for. Yeah, I think Buddy doing it would be like the, a, a lasting thing. It's a lasting thing because he's the most important superstar in the sport this season. And if you were to win a title, that's something that you don't get every year. And that would, to me, that's that's the best possible story that we could ask for on Monday night. That's a huge ask, but you know, yeah, we like, could, it, it, we're gonna get something interesting no matter what. Yeah, but like, I think like, that, like buddy, buddy going from forty <laughs> in a championship game with a game winner, like wow, right? That's an all time. That's an yeah. all time senior season. Um, I think Villa, I'm, and I mean this with all due respect. Villanova winning is just like, whatever, you know, like somebody has cool. to win. Yeah, cool. Yeah, everybody's got to win. Somebody's got to win the title every year. This year it was them. Cool. But that, I don't think that would really resonate with people. You know, like that would just be like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's good for Jay, good for Villanova, whatever. But the Roy thing, I think, resonates. Bayheim as a double-digit seed in a year where, be, he, yeah. where he was suspended. Yeah. Like it's pretty. It'd be the first double-digit seed to ever win the title. Yeah, that would like resonate. That would be pretty wild. And then you know, and then so I think Roy. I think yeah. really there's a, there's a North Carolina story that is a is a standout championship story. There's a Syracuse story that I think is a standout championship story. There's a Buddy Hield story that I think is a standout championship story. And then mm-hmm. I think Villanova means a lot to Villanova. That makes sense. <laughs> so yeah. let's just. Let's just prepare for Villanova to win in that right. case. Right, yeah, then Villanova. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah then Villanova's uh, going to win it. All right, I'm going to go blow my nose because I, I don't know if you can tell. I can't breathe. <laughs> oh, man, I am so sick. I, I cannot get better. And I think the main reason is because in our studio in New York, um, they keep the actual studio, like the set. I think it's four degrees in there. 
and it's yeah. but it's four. I don't know why they do that because everything, every other room in the building is uh, is perfectly normal. And that set, man, it is so cold. And I came to New York last week sick, and I sit, and then we did like a four hour show, like sit out there for four straight hours. And I was sitting in like four degrees for four straight hours, and I just, I woke up this morning, man, and I could not, I couldn't get it together. So I'm gonna go if you don't mind. I'm gonna well, go. Get, get better, and then are we gonna? Because we all get in on Wednesday, right? So um, we just got to figure out if we want to when we want to do the Wednesday podcast, like record it late Tuesday night, or do it powwow in person. You know, a little roundtable action on Wednesday. I honestly don't even know what time I get to Houston on Wednesday. I feel like okay, we'll figure. We'll I feel figure like that. I feel this like... is a late Monday podcast as it was. So. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to focus on blowing my nose, and then we'll worry about the rest of the stuff later. How about that? Is that <laughs> fair? Right, we'll see We'll see in a couple of days, buddy. All right. Shout out to Devin Downey. There we go. I was, I was going to drop close. it in. I was going to drop it in if you didn't, but uh, but I was waiting to see if you remembered. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. What do you mean remembered? That's the only thing I'm focusing on. I got like four notes in front of me. One of them's Academic Scandal. The other one's Buddy Hield, And then the other one's Devin Downey. <laughs> that's it. That's all I have in front of me. I don't. That's. I, I just. Uh, I, I hope I, people were listening to this, waiting for it, thinking that it wasn't going to happen. No, it's just... always going to happen. I, I love that people are just randomly tweeting. Shout out to Devin Downey. They're tweeting at Devin Downey. Like Devin Downey must be the most Some, used a, a person couple, in America. One more. One more quick thing that I promise we'll go. So I. Uh, I did an eyebrow bomb on national television. That was on really Friday. good. That was really good. But when I did that, no joke, I had four people over the next like 30 minutes being like, I need you to write down, shout out to Devin Downey on a piece of paper and get it on TV, <laughs> <laughs> like, which, I, which was an amazingly funny idea, but I could never do that. But uh, that would have been basically epic and viral. But I keep, uh, no, I keep but... wanting to get a shout out to Devin Downey on television, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I did get two two pros and a plumbly on national television multiple times. Uh, and I did right. and I did yeah, rest in peace to two pros and a plumbly. And I also got a I caught a fly live on television. I know. I know. Let's, that was let's, ridiculous let's, by the way. Can we leave can we the podcast with, by, let's by leave by the Wednesday podcast with that? I got uh there was this giant fly on set and I didn't know if anybody else could see it, but I could feel it. Like it popped me in the head and then it popped me on my arm and like I but I didn't know. Uh, this I, thing is like massively visible on television. Oh yeah, too. right. And so, um, you know, I didn't know what to do. Like, I've never been attacked by a fly while talking live on television. And so I, uh, I just kept talking. I just kept making my brilliant point, this expert analysis that they pay me to provide. And uh, and then I reached down without breaking eye contact with the camera, without skipping a beat in terms of my verbal presentation. And I grabbed this fly, I caught it with my hands, and I tossed it to the side. Just tossed it to the side like it were, like it were garbage. And, and then I was just going to go. I finished making my point, and I would have never said a thing, but Brendan Haywood, my big brother, uh, Brendan Haywood, shout out to Panda. I, uh, I, uh, he goes, good catch, Mr. Miyagi. And I was like, did you see that? Did everybody see that? And then we went back and watched the tape, and it's right there, clear as day. I caught a fly live on national television. And then the problem becomes, um, CBS ran those puppets out on the same night. Like it was oh, really man. a, it was a big moment for me. And then I got overshadowed by the Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith puppets. And you got overshadowed by a bunch of dudes that are basically like three inches shorter than you. It's oh brutal. my God. Like it, it's a little bit like scoring 40 in a, in a, in a game that tips at seven. And then like Steph Curry comes on at nine 30 and goes and gets 55. Like you got, <sighs> it's over with at that point. Feel like, for you. Yeah. yeah it's, it's I'm sorry about that, man. Yeah. But no, the video was actually very. It was. It was awesome. It, it was, was. It was awesome. I. Pre- you, you know, we both had not. We both had nice moments on national TV this weekend, Orlando. 
Yours was with your eyebrow, and mine was with my finger, my little bitty baby fingers. <laughs> okay, go blow your nose. You go blow your nose, Norlander. Don't boss me around. Well, all right, I'll see you guys later. If you want to subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast, you can do that on iTunes. If you don't want to, it doesn't matter to me. I gotta go.